Hey, it's Hanky here. Once again, we've tried to keep it clean, nice, and uh, Sunday morning appropriate, but you might hear a little bit of bad language. So if you or those you're with are a little bit sensitive to that sort of thing, you've been warned. I think a fair way to characterize my spiritual upbringing would be that of a submarine Protestant, uh, which we often refer to as the familiar Christmas Easter Christian, which means that you go to church basically two days of the year. Now, for me, this was very much a begrudging even two-day sacrifice, um, as it really would take a lot of enticement to get me to jam into a pair of polyester trousers and grab my clip-on tie and get out to the church. Um, Usually it was just sort of the threat that Santa Claus was going to um, leave some dog poop in my stocking and that there would be no uh, Christmas for me the next day if I didn't comply. So, you know, um, I I suppose uh, sanctions can often often help religions grow traction, and uh, in our house that was no exception. So I'd like to take that idea, though, that idea of... um, that two-day-a-year belief system, and I'd actually like to apply it a little bit to what we sometimes experience during Basel Week, because really for many brands, this is this is like Christmas and Easter rolled up into one. This is when they have to get a lot of press appointments and hopefully get a lot of uh, coverage. They also have to set up a lot of accounts and hopefully maintain the accounts that they have um, and, you know, get all their orders in. So, you know, it's a crucial time for everybody and that's understandable. Um, now, why I think these past couple of years have been interesting, and I guess, at least for me personally, what's prompting today's pod is I think there's been more and more of a growing disconnect um, with the brands to the press corps at large. Now, it used to be that you know everybody had press lists and press announcements would go out at the same time for the most part and let's let's call it equal opportunity you know if you were if you opened your email first and you downloaded the press kit and you got your post up there first or you got your article out first um therefore you had you know you you had the scoop as it were lately uh probably over the last three years there's been a moving trend towards um so-called exclusives and I'll, I'll put it even more bluntly the false perception that outlet a b or c has an inside track on information that the rest of the people covering watches or luxury don't have and that's simply not true um, very often you'll notice that these are the same outlets that have fairly massive advertising agreements with the brands um, they give the perception that they have this um, this inside track, but again, very often this is the the brand manager or the the communications manager or the PR person who will inevitably feel leveraged to the point that if they don't give this outlet their information first, that they're going to get cut off somehow. So that's a little bit of the backdrop. Um, now, why this I think is hopefully going to be of some interest to people not only in the industry but those outside of it as well it speaks a lot to content what you see where you see it and i would like to actually start asking the question why why do you see that content in that particular location so where in the past it used to be i'm fascinated by this i think it's interesting i think you'll find it interesting too 
more and more what we're seeing is um, in say the top three outlets we're going to see the top three stories and it's basically going to be the same story with a different flick a different twist a different um, take on it and inevitably it's going to come out between three to five days before the main press release giving the same information comes out to the rest of the people covering um, so that's a piece of it you know we're going to put that on the back shelf for a moment now the secondary piece of this is then let's let's take away the big dog brands let's take away uh richemont let's take away lvmh and let's take away swatch group and let's talk about the independent brands and you know ironically they've tried a similar approach whereby um, they will partner up with organizations and outlets that are in essence charging a fee for the coverage now to be clear, um, although it's not anything that I do or that I would feel comfortable with doing, I don't know necessarily that that's a legal issue. Um, is it something that I think is honest and straightforward for the reader to understand? No. Is it something that the brand is perfectly aware of and engaging in with this outlet? Absolutely. So I want to be very clear that I don't think brands who participate in this are being victimized and I don't think the outlets doing it are necessarily victimizers but if there are if not victims but let's say some innocent bystanders in this whole agreement and this whole way of doing things i do think it's the readers uh or the viewers or the listeners because nine times out of ten they're going to an outlet because um well for any number of reasons but the fact is that they're there and the reason why they're there is that they enjoy or appreciate the content and they're taking a fair amount of this as um, an honest perception, honest feedback. And let's just give you a for instance here. If if you do, if you read a review and the review is glowing and the review motivates you to go out and buy something, and then you find out later that the reviewer received monies or money to do the review, how would you feel about uh, the choice that you made in making that purchase based on that review, which to some extent uh, was funded. So we're, we're going to be opening up a fairly large can of worms today, um, but that's going to be sort of on a sideline that we're going to get to in a little bit. Um, but I think I want to get back to before we go down that particular rabbit hole, the whole notion about communication, about um, relationships and about Basel week and you know to some extent the SIHH and how a lot of what used to be a very relationship driven business has become probably a little bit too more too much distant a little too remote a little too indifferent and a little a little unhuman um, so for me um, lately my attitude has been I certainly am happy to cover brands. I'm certainly happy to engage with people. And don't get me wrong, I, I love having Basel World appointments. I love getting free swag. I definitely can be a buffet squirrel when, when there's um, free food and beverage out there on offer. But what I'm finding more and more is that the people who are making the decisions about who's getting access to um, a particular product launch, who's being included in the communication in a regular cycle as opposed to the B or the C cycle. Um, very often these folks are trendatarians, meaning 
that outlet A seems hot right now and we're going to pay them a lot of money and we're going to get them and they insist on an exclusive or being one of three people to get an exclusive. And I think that's A, unfair because I'd like to have the same access and I'm not charging for it. But B, I think it's, again, a little bit deceptive to the readership because it paints this picture that this outlet has um, some special embedded watch research forces, which they don't. They very often have an agreement and the agreement states that if they don't get the release first, they're not going to cover it. So that's a little bit of the backdrop. Now, my attitude lately, again, has been if I have made efforts, if I have reached out, if you as the brand are basically ignoring all of my emails and you're not responding, and then suddenly two weeks, three weeks out from Baselworld, you're wanting to set up an appointment with me, um, and particularly when I've already set most of my appointments a month in advance of this time, clearly suddenly there's some alarm bells sounding in your area because you're having a hard time getting other people to come in for a press appointment. That's part of it. Part of the second tier of that is it's a little bit of um, not understanding the relationship part of what we do and so it's I would imagine it's a little bit like you know you ask someone out on a date and they say well I tell you what I'm gonna let you know you know you want to go out at six I'm gonna let you know at 530 because I want to see if anybody else is gonna call first and ask me out who might be a better option and I, I realize that sounds a little petty but truthfully um, it's it is a respect issue and for many of us um, I think a lot of outlets that I've been talking to lately, they've had enough. A lot of print outlets who had had invitations and reservations to go to the SIHH this year just decided, screw it, we're not going to go. It's not worth it. So for me, obviously, I'm still going to go to Basel World and I'm still happy to talk to people, but I'm going to do that on my own time. I'm not going to set an appointment during a time period that actually costs me money to go and attend. I pay for my own ticket, I pay for my hotel, and I'm taking paid leave from my day job to go out and cover this. And if as a brand you can't respect that and you can't understand that, in fact, my time is worth something too, then I don't really know what we're talking about. So that's a little bit of the undercurrent. Um, but now I want to kind of tie this back to hopefully where we can uh, get back on an even footing with all of these outlets and all of the brands. And that's a very simple one that the brands need to start treating everybody equally. They need to stop depending on Instafamous, um, hip little, you know, hip outlets or the latest, um, the latest thing that they think is going to get uh, a lot of traction with a millennial audience that unfortunately is not buying a lot of watches. So it's about human interaction. It's about human contact and it's about relationships. And as my good friend Roderick Hess has said, and I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit, you can't email a handshake. Um, so that's our backdrop. That's what we're getting into. And uh, as I said, we're going to go down some deeper rabbit holes here today. Uh, we're going to touch on items about which it's, I've been often asked, why would you talk about that? Why would you cover it in your blog? And my simple answer is because it's the truth and it's what's happening. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about payola. We're going to talk about backhanders. We're going to talk about pay to play. Um, we're going to talk about so-called influencers and what that really means. Um, the theme for today and probably what we're going to call this podcast once we wrap it all up is the price of influence. So I hope you enjoy it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Click farm. Okay, so let's get the uncomfortable stuff out of the way first. Let's talk about our old friend, the click farm. Um, click farms, by definition, are not entirely legal. Um, a click farm is a business that pays employees to click on websites, website elements, website links to artificially boost the status or traffic or volume of a client's traffic. Um, they are usually based in developing countries and they are an easy way, uh, if you own an outlet of some description or another to boost that traffic and to give the impression that in fact you have more visitors than you do. Now let's be very clear that when I say this, I'm not going to name any names in the watch industry because truthfully, a, I think they know who they are, and B, um, it's not really the main point. Um, the point is just that it's something out there that's being used. Now, how can I be so sure of this? Well, I got a few pretty good reasons for making this assertion. One of them is that um, what I like to call the Richard Claterman effect. And for those of you unfamiliar, Richard Claterman was, um, I'm no offense to Richard Claterman or his family, but by all accounts of a fairly average uh, pianist and entertainer, um, but had some amazing publicity and marketing folks who would crank out these albums back in the 70s, 80s, and possibly even into the 90s. And that the announcer would say, Richard Claterman has sold more albums than the Beatles and Elvis combined. Now, that might indeed be true. I don't know. But let's just say that I have a hard time getting my head around it. And volume does not necessarily equal quality. So if we're talking about the click farm, does it exist and, and what does that really mean? When I, in the past, was trying to find advertisers for Tempest Fujit, the very first question that would be asked is, what's your traffic? And silly me, I thought I'd be honest about it and tell them what it was. Now, for those listening and keeping score at home, on a, on a very, very good day, I've had as much as 2,000 visitors. On, let's say, an average day when I'm producing and while I'm really putting the effort in, I might get lucky and get about 1,000 to 1,200 unique visitors. On a typical day lately, um, it's been closer to about 500 to 700 um, unique visitors coming in. And just so that we're clear, I'm okay with that. Um, I know that I have a very niche audience. Um, that niche audience is primarily made up of people who work in the watch industry. I had never really, at least in the later or most recent years of doing Tempest Fujit, had a desire to posture it as any sort of an outlet for uh, consumers. My hope was that a little bit like this podcast, that if you worked in the industry or if you were just interested in it in general and want to look at it on a slightly deeper level, that you know, it might be something you would enjoy. Now... How can I be so sure about this? Well, let me put it as a basic question. Do you think that there are more people out there interested in following fashion or interested in following watches? 
yeah, I think we can all agree that realistically, um, there are probably more people out there who are interested in fashion than just sort of a watch specific uh, channel for media. So it's interesting to relate. And again, not going to name names, but we'll just say that two of the biggest ones in the past month, if we go by um, site tracker, which essentially gives you um, or similar web, excuse me, and it gives you, I mean, granted, not an absolute in depth, what color underwear people wearing type of analysis, it will tell you to a large extent, um, within reason, what are the tracking numbers. So it's curious to relate that one uh, online watch outlet is not, and they're, to be clear, they're not the ones claiming it. This is just what's pulling up on the similar web tracking, but it's showing um, 2.45 million unique visitors a month. Number two, or at least the one that I plugged in, 1.16 million. Now, where this gets interesting is then when we think about um, probably one of the more popular and certainly influential blogs, although maybe not as much as it was in the past, still solid. It's a sartorialist. You know, this is a guy who gets paid a lot of money by fashion companies to consult, to do product development, what have you, as well as his blog. He's got three books out that I'm aware of. Um, traffic, uh, somewhat pedestrian, 321,000. If we look at some others, you know, those numbers get even lower. And it's only when we look to Mighty Vogue that we get a pretty large number, which is 9.6 million. So again, I call this the Richard Claterman effect because I, I refuse to accept that there are more people interested in watches than there are in general fashion. And more specifically, because general fashion it's even more visual than than online watch outlets. So, um, sorry, I'm calling bullshit on that one. I'm definitely not buying it. Now, then, where where does all this traffic come from? Well, as I said, you know, some of it, some of them are aggregators. Some, it's possible, you know, there are forces at work beyond these outlets' control, and they're just not aware of it. But in fairness, I think when when the ball started rolling. For most of the people in digital media within, let's say, the last 10 years, in the early days, it was an easy fix. Oh, yeah, we're going to you know, we're going to buy some traffic. We're going to do this and that because let's be honest, it wasn't regulated. So if that is what happened, if that is what happened, it's maybe understandable. But what begs the question for me is how realistic is that traffic now? Would I be shocked to think that these outlets had um, several hundred thousand visitors a month? Absolutely not. That would not surprise me in the least. There is very sincere, very honest traffic for a lot of these sites. I just have a hard time getting my head around that number because if that number were accurate, then truthfully, it would put every other outlet out of business because they just no one could justify spending the money to advertise with them. So that that piece of it just doesn't add up. So the click farm alive and well. Pay to play. So you ever wonder why a seemingly middling brand, albeit one owned by a very large group that basically sells like a turd that you struggle to find in any kind of retail outlet that's constantly discounted and flogged on every gray market outlet, yet it's being prized and championed by um, some of the great and good of the watch, uh, the watch media cognoscenti. How does that, how does that happen? Well, 
it's not too difficult to understand if you think about it. Um, every watch company of, of any decent size has budget to pay for this type of thing. And the nice thing is that they just drill it all down to media. And if I'm very honest, the companies or the media outlets that are collecting revenues and then creating content based on this are not calling it anything other than it is, which is a package. And the package covers a multitude of sins um, by saying, oh, this is all part of your media package. We're going to, you know, you're going to have this much content that runs on our site. Now, you know, within reason, I think that's fair. Um, But... I think for me, it begs the question that when you are going to media outlet A and you're going there because you respect their opinion, they've been doing it for a long time. They've got a great following, which, you know, whereas as we get back to the whole click farm thing, I'm sure that they do have a great, you know, they have a great legitimate following, uh, whether or not it's the, you know, gazillions that they're saying that site trackers are saying that they have is open to discussion. But Stripping all that aside, you know, this is where we get down to that question of, okay, why is that watch showing up in this particular outlet? And the why, dear listeners, unfortunately, nine times out of ten is because somebody somewhere in the organization was willing to part with some money to make sure it happened. Now, is this a universal thing? No. Um, does every outlet charge? No. And in fact, the outlets that do charge, do they charge for everything? Again, a resounding no. But it is important to understand that when things seem weird and they don't quite add up and you wonder why brand A suddenly is the darling of these crusty, judgmental, hard to please, don't like anything other than (laughs) Patek, Rolex, what have you, suddenly think that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, there's a reason. And the reason is that someone at Brand A dipped into the coffers, paid for that media package, and that's why you see it in Outlet X. It doesn't just happen. It's not just, wow, you know, I I just didn't realize what a great brand this was. It's, you know, I suddenly I woke up one day and I was like, oh my God, Brand X, Brand X. It doesn't work that way. Um, I know that this is kind of cynical and I apologize because really, If I think about it, in a lot of ways, it's hard not to be romantic about watches. But I think when you peel away a little bit of the varnish and you see that some of the furniture is a little bit more dinged up than you would believe, uh, it's it's hard not to look past that. So next time you see media outlet saying this brand is just amazing and it's great and it's well worth your nine hundred ninety five dollars. And then you do a Google search and it pops up on your favorite gray market site for 70% off of what that dollar amount is. That's not an accident. Um, That is the forces of commerce basically dictating to you what you're going to read and see. Um, And yeah, you can, you can call it watch journalism all you want. But again, on that one, I'm calling bullshit. So take that with however much salt you need to. But once again, be be inquisitive, ask questions, you know, really ask yourself, Okay, just because person this person over at outlet A is telling me that this is amazing and it's great and it's wonderful. Is it really? And if someone is sitting there singing a brand's praises and yet that brand is being deeply discounted 
and you're not really seeing that brand anywhere else except maybe a couple of other outlets, that tells you something. And what that's telling you is that that brand is paying for a package that is in essence not just solely about informing you of the qualities of that watch. It is basically very clearly targeted to a certain outlet that has enough of a readership that it will give the impression based on the standing of that outlet that this is what the people within that outlet believe to be true. And I'm not, just to be very clear, I'm not saying that that isn't the case, but I'm also saying that those watches do not show up on those outlets by accident. There is a reason. And the reason is not necessarily as romantic as we'd like to think. The reason is very often financial. The strong arm. The Velveteen Rabbit wanted to be a real bunny. Pinocchio wanted to be a real boy. And, you know, it's it's the same in the watch business. Mighty or small, every watch company wants to be perceived as real. And the only way that you're perceived as real is if you have actual watches that are actually produced and actually landing on the wrists of actual people who are actually wearing them. And how do you make that happen? Well, you know, nine times out of 10 in today's reality, you're going to make that happen by getting that watch in front of as many people as possible. And usually that's happening either through a blog, an online outlet, you know, in in rare cases, a magazine. But essentially, the watch can't stand up and talk for itself. So you need someone to essentially be the spokesperson for that watch. And, you know, I spent, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I I hearken back to when I, even before I got into the business and I was reading, you know, every watch magazine that came out and I thought, wow, how glamorous, how, how amazing. I, I wish I could be like the head of PR. I wish I could be the brand manager and I could meet all these famous people and, and present them with these amazing watches. And, and they're, they're famous, somehow going to reflect on me. And, and of course, no, I mean, half of these people, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry to pop any bubbles here, but half of the famous people that you meet, uh, especially in this business, they are a whole lot less interesting than you really think they are. And um, having, having had my share of those encounters, I can tell you it is definitely something that I don't really miss at all. Um what would happen once I got into working for a specific brand is, you know, you get you get a flood of emails and even phone calls of people with their hands in your pocket. You know, you literally had to keep the company wallet on a chain, locked in a safe, buried underground uh, because everyone would come around sniffing. And it it really taught me something about human nature. And, and I, I get it. We all want something for free if we can. Um, it taught me something about uh, FOMO, which is fear of missing out. And for a brand, and especially when times are lean, FOMO is very real. FOMO will make you do things that you would not do in your normal life. FOMO will drive you to the edge of rational decision making. FOMO will make you give a free watch to someone who is basically going to turn around and flip it on eBay or give it to someone they meet at a bar when they're drunk 
or they're just basically going to park in a drawer and forget about it. So, you know, when we talk about that, you know, the anxiety, I think anxiety drives a lot of business for better, for worse. And particularly when things are not going well, or more specifically, even if things are going okay, but you want them to go a little bit better. And that FOMO is going to make you um, a lot more susceptible to the charms of, um, of that confidence man. That person is going to come in and whisper something in your ear and and let you know that they're they're the ones who are going to do this for you. They're going to take you to the promised land, and inevitably they don't. Okay, um, I would I would love to love to tell you that any celebrity partnership is going to boost a watch brand's stock immediately, and it very seldom ever works out that way. And then when you get into the smaller brands, it's not even celebrity; it's just notoriety. And therefore, you cling on to the most obvious thing that it would be, and that would be the person working in media. If you can somehow get them on your side, if you can get them to review your watch, if you can get them to talk about it, um, it's it's a very false belief that all your problems are going to be solved. And of course, they're not because people, even, even lowly people like me, um, we get stuff thrown at us all the time. Oh, would you do this? And how much will it cost? And I'll give you X, Y, and Z. Now, as for myself, I always have to say I can you can ship it to me. We'll do the review and we'll ship it back to you. And in um, in some situations, that's fine. In some situations, I think they just don't believe you. And it's very natural that because they've been told by other outlets that it's going to cost X, they believe if you're not going to charge them anything, then it's not worth doing. So part of that is where we are. But then when the shoe's on the other foot, and it's not necessarily even the brand reaching out, but it is the the media site or the media personality reaching out directly to that company and basically stating that, yeah, they'd like to do a review, but they want X. And it can, on the most obvious level, it can be money. But then very often it's like, I want to watch and I want to keep it. Now, if we refer back to the, what the FTC rules are, it's very easy to say that you can't do that. But the FTC isn't everywhere, and the FTC only operates in the United States. And I can't really speak to terms of international law because they vary. And frankly, that's, again, not the point of this. What I'm driving at here is ethics. And I think that if if you're covering this stuff and if the sole motivation is I'm getting into this so I can get free stuff, um, then I think you're doing the, you're in it for the wrong reasons. That's my own personal statement. If it's a business model, then state that it's a business model and clearly convey that to your readership because I think they have a right to know too. And if, if we're all being honest about it, I think that people sometimes find the truth refreshing and they can handle it and they can take it. Um, but invariably this FOMO is going to push, um, particularly the small and independent brands to make some really poorly informed decisions that don't necessarily cost them a lot on the front end, but it's like a little poison pill that they've swallowed. Um, it's not going to kill them right away. It's going to take a little bit of time. Um, I'll give an example of brand X brand X, um, came out a few years back and that approach was we'll give every every notable influencer one or in fact one of each of our variations and they weren't inexpensive you know i mean i think they were retailing for about you know 7 800 dollars 
Now, granted, you know, their production costs are uh, a small, small hiccup compared to that, but that's still a lot of product going out. Um, and invariably, you get that initial pop of, wow, this is great. This is wonderful. It's the witch's britches. I love this watch. Wow. But when you send that all over in that first wave, then that's it. And it's not really sustainable. It doesn't continue the buzz to keep going. And in essence, what you've achieved is really hard to quantify because you can't really tell how much people are necessarily responding to sincere communication about how good your product is versus, um, in essence, hopped up feedback from someone who got a backhander and is happy with it. Um, but now let's go back to the, the main point, which is the strong arm. And the strong arm is when that influencer or that outlet owner will basically tell you in no uncertain terms that they want it. You need to give it to them. If you don't give it to them, they're never, ever going to write about you. And that can be terrifying for a small brand owner because their feeling is, I need to make this happen. You know, I've I've convinced my my wife, husband, partner, what have you, that um, I'm gonna I'm I'm solely committed to this. I've quit my day job. We've got kids. We've got school fees. We've got um, you know I'd, I'd like to go on a vacation someday, and this person is trusting me to make sound, intelligent decisions. But our sales have been pretty flat. And I think if I can just be in this outlet, it's going to turn things around. So unfortunately, that is seldom the case. It is very, 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 very rare that your presence as a watch brand within a certain outlet is going to solve all or even 85% of your problems. It just doesn't. So the strong arm is a great tactic for the bottom feeders and the catfish out there who basically... They want something, and it's it's all well and good to say that we all have great intentions, and I'm sure that we do. Um, I think personally that when you come from a place of avarice, it sooner or later will show, but I also think that you are constantly in a world where your your moral compass can bend pretty quickly. Now, let's even take the brand out of this equation. And let's just think about, again, the reader or the consumer of your content. And if you are basically barking like a seal because you're waiting for that fish to get thrown into your mouth, in this case, that watch to be put on your wrist or that cash to be wired into your account, it's disingenuous. It's not accurate. It's not fair. It's not honest. And I can't make the world be a certain way. But I can say that there is a way that in a perfect world, things would work. And it would be this, that we're honest about what we're receiving, that we disclose it, that when we sincerely believe something is good, I think, therefore, it is far more likely to be taken serious by the public at large. There's nothing wrong with a media person being a fan or even, dare I say it, an ambassador of a brand. I am very much that person for Minase, and I am absolutely proud to say it. I am proud to say that I work in conjecture with Sartre BR, but I will also say that I can no longer write about those brands or even communicate about them here on the podcast 
because I have a commercial relationship with them and it would be unethical and it would be deceptive to anybody either reading or tuning into what I'm saying. And I guess what I'm getting at is I think that everyone could still make a living and still be honest about what they're doing. And I guess maybe that's the thrust of where we're going with all of this today. Whew. So that was a long-winded way of saying, let's uh, let's cut the bullshit, let's be honest, let's be clear about what we really mean, and I guess uh, I, maybe I'm hopeful because <laughs> I don't really think anything's going to change, but I got it off my chest. So listen, you've um, you flushed another good chunk of your life away listening to this, which I do appreciate. We'll see you next time, and until then... Until then, Tempest Fujit.